Welcome to the Work Revolution podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Hello, and welcome back to our listeners, kicking off season two with my new co-host, Lisa. How are you doing today, Lisa? I'm doing absolutely great, Deborah, and I'm so thrilled to be jumping into season two with you. You've had a phenomenal season one of the Work Revolution podcast, and it's a pleasure for me to be able to join you in what we both know is going to be an incredible season two. Yeah, I'm really excited. We have some amazing stuff planned and we're we're doing something a little different today. We are doing a little somewhat of a character analysis, I guess I would call it perhaps, of the Deanna Troy character from Star Trek, The Next Generation. You'll tell me if I get some of these words wrong because you're the bigger fan than I am of the show. (laughs) However, I am really fascinated by this character. You're going to tell us a little bit about the character and the show for people who may or may know less or more about it, but she's just an interesting character and especially the time at which this show. And the question you and I are asking today is this type of role that she held on the ship, does it exist in workplaces, in business? Is it a role that exists in organizations? And if not, should it? That's where what we're tackling today So over to you. Tell us a little bit about it. You were a fan of the show. Yeah, I was definitely a fan of the show. I'm pretty sure I've watched every episode at least twice. That does not make me an expert by any stretch, but I've always been captivated by television series that have a sort of a moral or an ethical container around them. And so let me just describe for listeners who might not be familiar with the series, Star Trek Next Generation, or TNG, as those of us who watched it call it, was an American science fiction TV series. And it follows the adventures of the Starship Enterprise as it's hurtling through space in the 24th century. And at that time, Earth and this future that we're all, not us, but our future ancestors are part of, it's part of the United Federation of Planets. So apparently peace has come, planets have joined. And the series was a sequel of sorts to the original series that aired from 1966 to 1969, starring William Shatner as Captain Kirk. And for those who live in Montreal, you'll know that William Shatner is a Montrealer. He went to McGill. But in TNG, the ship's captain, Jean-Luc Picard, who's played by the talented and, if I may say so, very sexy Patrick Stewart, leads a senior team on which Deanna Troy, who we're speaking about today, is the ship's counselor. She's of mixed race. She's human and Betazoid. She has extensive training in psychology, and she serves both as a therapist and a diplomat, given her high degree of intuition and her limited telepathic skills. Now, interestingly, her role was originally conceived as being three or four-breasted, 
piece of eye candy for the show and wasn't initially seen as a key part of how the series would unfold. And as I understand it, as I was reading about the background to the show, the show's writers found her character very difficult to write for. And it took a few seasons for a more fully developed and nuanced character to emerge. So that's the background on the show. And Deborah, you and I have talked about, as you said a moment ago, you know, here's someone on the Starship Enterprise who we presume has been hired into this role. And it serves a very specific function that is different from an engineer or a CFO or some chief other officer. And the question that you and I bounced back and forth was in the way that we conceive of it today, is this an HR role? I'd like to know what your thoughts are on this. Before I do, I'll just say in my limited viewing of the show, because I certainly am well aware of it and I have seen some episodes, this idea that this character is misunderstood and like, I always found myself wanting more of Deanna Troy, whenever I would watch the show, because there was a few episodes where I thought, oh, she, there's something interesting there. It's like the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more I felt like often could have been done with that character. So it's interesting they went there, but I feel like there's so much more that could be explored with them. Is this existing in business? Is it HR? I don't think so. I don't see HR filling this role. I think that HR is the closest thing that we have. And I think that we're really talking about that more soft skills area. Soft skills tend to be misunderstood. They're less tangible, especially when we talk about something like intuition, right? Which I'm a firm believer in intuition, but it's something that's hard to describe or quantify. It's a bit mystical almost, right? I think that this is not only misunderstood, but undervalued these types of skills. We don't, in businesses, place high value on them, especially when compared to the more tangible things, let's say like finance and technology, right? And HR seems to be really tied up with the functioning, you know, like getting people in and out of the organization and all the administrative components to that. And I see them more focused on two main things. This is my observation and my opinion about HR right now or people and culture, whatever. I think the trend is changing, right? Whether they get there, I don't know. But from what I've observed, HR exists to serve the executives. I don't mean coach the executives and make the executives better necessarily. I think they try to do that often, but I think it's more serve the executives and performance manage everybody else. (laughs) Performance manage the employees, so to speak. And hey, there's a lot of work to be done around managing a workforce and all the data required and making sure people get paid and bonuses. And I don't know, what else would you add to that list that HR seems to be more focused on? I have such mixed feelings even talking about HR because I come from a learning and development perspective, but the roles I've held in organizations often were in the HR department. As you described, they don't seem, even though the word human is in it, they've never seemed humane to me for a large part. A lot of what I've seen in human resources is exactly what you're talking about, the transactional bringing people into the organization, the recruitment, do they have the skills that are required in the role? 
onboarding them into the culture of the organization, into the specific tasks they're being required to do. And then there's the whole labor relations for whether unionized or non-unionized organizations. Things like succession planning, who's going to be the next person potentially to take a role in an organization, pay, benefits. That's typically when we think of HR, in my view. And where I see a huge gap is this lack of understanding or clarity that humans are not a cost or a liability in an organization. They are the organization. You want people to be welcomed, to feel a sense of belonging, to be able to bring their potential and their creativity and their thinking. And yet I can tell you from the many organizations I've worked in, we've hired fantastic people who are often very well-rounded. And within six months of their becoming an employee of the organization, everything that was great about them has been muted because we're asking them to fit in more than we're asking them to make themselves at home and get to know them and discover what they can bring to the goals and the vision and the mission of the organization. I think there's a big vacancy and a big opportunity here for organizations. And the way that I see the Deanna Troy type role in an organization, if you will, I'm going to call it the chief wisdom officer. What would come under the role of chief wisdom officer? That's something that I think would be fun for us to explore a little bit if this was a role that really did exist. And so there's a little bit of crossover into maybe traditional HR, but it goes a lot further, I think. And so I've written down four high-level key areas that I think this chief wisdom officer would be responsible for. So let's just go through those and we'll chat a little bit about each of them. So the first one I have down is what I would call like almost an ethics watchdog. So I see this as being the person who really works with the executive team to ensure that the organization operates in accordance with its expressed values, that there's values alignment. And that's not just that's internally in terms of the employee experience, but it's also externally in terms of how the organization operates within a community, with its customers, with its suppliers, with its investors, and within the geographic community that it exists in. I know you've done a lot of work on organizational values and a lot of taking leadership teams through those exercises. What say you about your experience with values? I am deeply interested, not just in what organizations do and how we support people in fulfilling the tasks in order to deliver on the mission of an organization. In fact, I would say I'm far more interested, given the work I do, in how the work is done, how people relate to each other. And even deeper than that, who are we as people doing this work? And really what values are is this, a sense of what matters to us, what is critical to us in how we do our work and who we are in the doing of the work. Organizations, as you've worked in them, I've worked in them, typically have anywhere from three to five. Some have seven values. I don't know how you can remember that many, but typically organizations have values that are really proxies for the kinds of behaviors that 
the organization says it values. So for instance, an organization might say integrity is one of our values. And so what that means is how we do our work is we do it with candor and authenticity and honesty, whether it's our accounting practices or how we hold conversations. We don't have the meeting after the meeting in the room down the hallway and talk about, well, I can't believe what so-and-so said. Values such as courage, that when we need to step into something that is more difficult or take a stand publicly because we believe strongly in something, that we actually do that and that we don't create systems or cultures around that that make it hard for people to express themselves or to call something out that might be inappropriate. And so really when we talk about, you call it the ethics watchdog, is really holding people accountable to the shared values and behaviors that define the kind of culture and how we want to be with each other as human beings, regardless of role within the hierarchy. And how many people do you think can say they either currently do or they have worked for an organization that they really felt that values alignment that, I mean, not to be overly pessimistic about things, but in my work, I have worked with many, many employees who felt a values misalignment. And I would say that it's become almost pervasive in our work culture that we accept that because that's just business. That's the way companies operate. That's just what leaders do. And we almost give it, in some cases, a pass. That's just the way organizations are, that those values are more of a marketing thing as opposed to the lived experience. That sense of hypocrisy that's created, I think it just creates a general sense of mistrust and almost like sort of a sense like skepticism about workplaces in general. And people will take that from one organization to another, those experiences. So I think it's really important that organizations start to really look at this carefully because we want to change the culture around this. Otherwise, we've got a a whole workforce of disengaged people who are skeptical about leadership. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've noticed in the course of my work is what I call culture washing. And in the same way that organizations might purport themselves to be really environmentally friendly and say that they are using a particular kind of paper bag or whatever to, (laughs) instead of plastic to sell their product, but meanwhile, they're using child labor in some developing country saying we're green, but having another potentially or very clearly unethical practice. Organizations also do this with their culture, with their values. They will sell themselves as being full of integrity or courage, the two I mentioned earlier, that this is a place for innovation and creativity, that we value candor, that we value people being able to fail and learn. And then you, you know, many of us are recruited into these organizations. I've had this experience myself of feeling that I was sold on an organization's culture, that in fact, when I got there was anything but. And it is deeply disappointing. I mean, once you, you know, when you're getting a job, you're negotiating about the salary. What is it that I'm going to be doing? You're all excited. The day that you're the most highly engaged in an organization is the second before you walk in the door because you're full of hope. And then to discover that the culture, as it was described to you, is nothing but. And I mean, sometimes it can happen within a day or two when you watch what's happening in meetings, how people talk about each other. That's one thing. And just to touch on what you said earlier, often cultural values affect people differently or are called to differently depending on their role in the organization. So you can get away with things 
If you are, you know, like the rainmaker, or if you are, and I worked in healthcare, if you are the physician who can make deaf people hear, chances are you don't have to be as respectful to, let's say, the nurses or the social workers on the unit because you have a particular skill set that we will allow you to not honor the values. But as I've said throughout my whole career, when it comes to behavior, what you permit, you promote. Well, that leads me excellent into number two, which is, I think, the chief wisdom officer, aka the Dieta Troy role in the organization, is to also be on asshole alert. And so I think of this as the leadership screen. Who gets into leadership roles in an organization and based on what qualities and characteristics? And so we do have, compared to the the average in the population, narcissists and sociopaths are overrepresented in leadership. And generally speaking, we don't have enough leaders who are really self-aware and high in emotional intelligence or EQ. So I really see that role as working with leaders to help them develop those skills to the extent that they can And not everybody's going to be good at everything. Deanna Troy has natural capabilities in this area. Other people have natural capabilities in engineering, finance, math, other areas. Great. But how do we value these things? Are we valuing them equally and ensuring that we use the best of all of those capabilities? Or what I see happening most of the time is that those more softer skills areas are somewhat diminished or undervalued, and we're overvaluing these other areas. So that person to me is making sure that the right people move through the ranks for the right reasons and is coaching and making it sort of pervasive in the entire culture that we avoid those situations like what you just described, because that affects how everybody feels about an organization when certain behaviors are not just tolerated, but rewarded. I've seen this many times in my career. I'm sure you have, where somebody who's very technically competent gets promoted into a leadership role. We know that doing a thing, I'm just going to use knitting as an example. I don't know why that popped into my head. does not necessarily make you a really great chief knitting officer because it's an entire different skill set. Clicking two needles together with a long piece of wool to create a beautiful piece of clothing or a toque or whatever is very different than talking to people about the things that they're producing and are they happy and are they comfortable and all of those other things. What might be getting in the way of higher performance? So becoming a leader is a very different skill set than being an individual contributor. And where I think we have a major problem in organizations is the only paths to hire in many organizations to a higher role, to a better salary is to take on leadership roles. And I met a woman years ago who was, I can't remember, I think she was Danish. She was one of the countries in Scandinavia. And she worked for an organization where regardless of whether your career path was into leading people or to refining your skills as a technical person and an individual contributor, they had career ladders for both. So that prevented people who were very technically competent, who did not have the potential or the willingness or the desire to develop, to have a career path that recognized 
prioritize their own development in deepening. And so you're not force feeding people into leadership roles because that's the only way in order for them to evolve in their careers. I think this is something organizations really need to look at because otherwise we get exactly what you described is people who are pursuing power into leadership roles that necessarily might not have the skills that what we would think of leaders needing, i.e. Deanna Troy-ish skills in the workplace. Is it fair to expect all of these things in one person or should they be teased apart, but work collaboratively together? I think that's a great question. And I think it's a great thing for organizations to look at and scrutinize a little more carefully. Number three on my list is this role This ties together a few things we've already touched on, but it needs to ensure that the very best of behavioral, social, and neuroscience is being utilized in the people practices of the organization. People practices, leadership, conflict resolution, how do we help people to innovate and be creative? There is a growing amount of peer-reviewed science. There are a ton of great thought leaders and scientists out there doing this work. And I'm just going to do a quick comparison to the CFO role. The CFO role, are they using the very best accounting practices and finance practices out there? Is the math science behind that, I'm using some air quotes here, readily available and being applied in organizations today? Yeah, absolutely it is. But can we say the same about those more softer skill areas and the science behind it? And this is where I see a huge miss and a huge opportunity for organizations moving forward. What do you think? Do you see this being fully fleshed out and utilized in organizations? Not yet. We have yet to optimize for neuroscience. And when we talk about neuroscience, to be clear, it's different from psychology. So psychology is the study of the human mind and human behavior, where neuroscience is the study of the anatomy and the physiology of the brain. So this is where we understand, for instance, the impact of freezing people out or social isolation. What actually happens in the brain is people feel the same amount of pain as though they were physically injured. So this is understanding what happened, like neuroscience and it's understanding what actually physically happens in the brain. So much work has been done about the workplace and how we can create places that are healthy for the human brain. This has been studied through magnetic resonance, MRIs. It's been studied through positron emission, tomography, PET scans, all kinds of evidence that when we put people in situations in the workplace that we're not taking care of like who they are in terms of who their brains are, separate from the behavioral pieces that are more psychological, we're not actually creating environments in which people can be creative, productive, innovative. If we're not watching or paying attention to or creating work environments that are based on what we know of science in terms of the human being, I totally, totally agree with you. The skeptic out there is saying, well, why should an organization have to worry about any of that? They're there to make money. We understand that. (laughs) And we're going to come to some of the benefits of why. And this is what the whole podcast is going to be about moving forward, because there are tangible benefits to the bottom line. and The data is there. So not to worry. We haven't forgotten about the money. Okay. So then the last one, I'm calling this helping people with their emotions. Like again, this soft area of feelings and emotions at work, 
which I think critical to professional development is emotional management. What is your experience in terms of how emotions are perceived and dealt with at work? I mean, I certainly know how I've felt about my show of emotions at work. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, how many times have I heard, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard, it's just a business or it's just a job as a way to dismiss very powerful feelings that come up in the workplace. It's not personal. It's business. Yeah. I totally agree with you when you say organizations are there to fulfill a function, whether it's a profit motive, right? But creating a product or a service that helps people live, you have to pay for it. Somebody's making a profit somewhere. Groceries, for instance, we need to eat. We know there are people who are profiting from this, but we also profit from it by having access to somebody who's willing to get food for us and package it and sell it to us. Or even if you look at the broader nonprofit sector, you know, things like public broadcasting, healthcare, like we earn incomes in order to pay taxes to have certain benefits of living in society. Here's the thing. Our brains are not machines. Okay. Let me just briefly touch on in my limited understanding. I talked a little bit about neuroscience, but let me just, you know, give listeners a sense of when we talk about emotion in the workplace, why there needs to be room for it. Brains are essentially three things. There's a brain stem. This is the part of the brain that regulates bodily functions. You monitors your current state. If you're too hot, you sweat. If you're too cold, you shiver. These are things you don't even think about. Your brain stem takes care of that. Then we have the limbic brain. That's more of the emotional brain. And it's really two parts to this. The hippocampus, which weaves emotions and times and perceptions and memory, and the amygdala. That's where the emotional processing happens. And if something startles you or you hear bad news, this is the part of the brain that reacts very, very quickly. And then evolutionarily, we have at the front of our, you know, basically over our eyeballs, the prefrontal cortex. It's called the executive functioning brain. It integrates signals from the brainstem and the limbic system and gives us a sense of self and is responsible for thinking and planning and goal setting, moral awareness, intuition, balancing our emotions, choosing how we want to express ourselves. Now, the reason I touch on those three things, and I'll give you an example, very quick example. Put a rose in front of the brainstem. That part of the brain says, mm, smells good, looks pretty. The limbic system will associate a rose with love. The prefrontal cortex is, oh my goodness, Valentine's Day is coming up. I got to get some flowers for main squeeze, parent, etc. So that kind of gives you a sense of what the three parts of the brain are. The reason I give you that background is we're not only prefrontal cortexes. We're not only planning and reasoning. We are emotional people. We are impacted by things that happen in the workplace. Deborah, you have seen this. An organization goes through a downsizing and people are, as you know, we might say, left behind with very mixed emotions. It's in colleagues that they've worked with. Yes, this is maybe just a business and it's not personal, but grieving comes with these kinds of situations. And so having, again, a Deanna Troy role to help people work through feelings so that they can focus on the vision and the mission and the strategies of an organization is deeply important. Otherwise, people get stuck in very intense emotions that they're not able to process. Generally speaking, in our culture, there's this idea that we should suppress emotion. We shouldn't really show it. It's almost unprofessional. And the appropriate 
dealing with processing management of emotion. Like, yes, there's a more professional way to communicate, but what I've seen happen more so is sort of a denial, a pushing down, a suppression, a denial that these things are at play in the workplace and hugely influential. And I think it's because a lot of people lack the skill in dealing with it. We're afraid to go there. Yeah. So it's just one of those areas that I think is really tricky for a lot of, especially people in leadership to know how to deal with it. So I want to unpack this a little bit based on the work of a psychologist by the name of Susan David. She works in the department of psychiatry at Harvard medical school. She's got a great Ted talk and is the author of emotional agility. And she has something that she calls an emotional pyramid of needs, which caught my eye recently. What I liked about it, because the top, the very top of the pyramid is wisdom, which I think is sort of where we're going with this, that, that really leaning into understanding emotion, help being able to process it for yourself, help others deal. It's part of wisdom, right? Here's a couple things though, that she says about emotion at the very base level, like step number one, bottom of the pyramid, that there's no value in trying to deny or suppress uncomfortable emotions. Now we tend to label emotions as positive or negative, but here's the thing. When we suppress what we think of as is grief a negative emotion. No, it's part of the human experience. We can't deny it. You can try, but here's the thing. When we suppress negative emotion, we suppress joy. We suppress love. We suppress all those things that make life creativity. It's a two-way street. You don't get to live fully. You have to experience both ends of that spectrum. The other thing she says is our emotions are data that tell us what we're missing in our lives. They are signposts that can teach us how to make better decisions and take values-based actions. So to me, emotion is information. Emotion is data. It's something to be explored, to be maybe discussed. Wouldn't it be great to be in a boardroom and be able to say, I'm getting really triggered by this conversation. I'm not really sure what it is, but can we take a bit of time to unpack that and to have people like be willing to listen and explore that as opposed to feeling, well, quite frankly, just embarrassed to bring it up, I think is, I don't know that most people would feel it. Oh, there goes Lisa again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Any thoughts on that, Lisa? I've been in the workforce since I was 14 years old. If you count my very first job, which I was fired from making ice cream in a soft cone business because I couldn't quite figure out the pulling the lever down and the turning with the other hand. But aside from that, workplaces are, first of all, we spend a ton of time at work, but many of us more than our families. Who knows, right? Maybe for good reasons. Maybe maybe we need a break from our families. But aside from that, to me, and this touches on what you said a little bit earlier about, you know, why talk about what might be considered this airy fairy stuff? Well, in order to have good productivity, to have healthy people contributing to society who are not part of this incredibly huge wave of people who are experiencing stress, the burden of mental illness and anxiety, particularly during a pandemic, is that workplaces, if you want to extract 
the labor and the intelligence and the knowledge and the capabilities of people, the best way to do that is to create an environment that people actually want to be in and that feels safe to express those things and to be able to call out behaviors that go against the stated organizational values. There is no downside to having a healthy, emotional, psychologically safe workplace. I do want to put two caveats on that. I'm not saying that when you express yourself at work that everything goes. I'm not saying that people can express their full selves if their full selves are abusive or disrespectful. I'm talking about the traits that allow us to evolve as humanity, to create products or services or ways of creating environments that really help people evolve whatever their journey that they're on. And I would call a more positive state. The other thing is our planet is on fire slash being flooded out. We need environments where people can find solutions. Like we're going to run out of time if we don't create workplaces in which people or any of us, groups, teams, communities come together and solve very urgent problems that this planet is facing. So why we would continue to think that the workplace is where I can only bring a set of hands and a prefrontal cortex, those are the only parts of me that are welcome, it makes no sense. So my first caveat is that, to to not just think that anything goes. The second caveat is we need to really rethink what we mean by leadership because we are being stunted by hierarchies in which somehow we believe that the higher up people are in organizations, that they're smarter, that they know more, that they're better. That might be the case, but let's not forget that we are all human beings who are discovering things all at the same time. And maybe you know a little bit more when you're a leader because you've been exposed to more, but we actually need everyone to be fully participating. Now I'm feeling like put a soapbox under my feet. We're capable. We are smart people. All of us are smart people. If we're not doing this, where are we going to end up? That actually is frightening to me. Most of what we're doing right now is not sustainable. We know this and there's lots of science to say so. Almost everything we do, look around, almost everything we do, we could be doing in a better, more sustainable way. We need to unleash people's innate talents, capabilities. We need to harness their passion, their motivation. People want to do those things. The workplace and leaders are often what's getting in the way from people developing that and contributing more. We can have a more beautiful life. We can make our society, our world better for everyone, but we need to create better workplace cultures for that to happen. And we need the right kind of leadership in place in order for that to happen. One of the things, just to go back to Deanna Troy, where we started, is I hope that in the 24th century that women are not wearing short skirts and showing their cleavage uh, in order to be in the workplace. We are required to bring our hearts and our minds to the workplace. And to use her character as an example, and, and you know, for those of you who are curious, watch the first five minutes of an episode in season one. It's episode 24 called We'll Always Have Paris. There's a lovely moment at the very beginning of the episode in which Deanna Troy gives such incredibly nuanced feedback to Captain Jean-Luc Picard. That's the kind of workplace that I want to be a part of, where somebody can create an environment where it's safe to talk about things that might be uncomfortable, and that this is about helping us all grow and learn to bring our better selves 
to the workplace. I love the idea that we can have a conversation like this that might even be based on a fictional character, but that actually has some grounding in where we need to go. I think there are many clues around us. There are many people you and I read who we love to listen to in the podcast we listen to who are helping us get there. And the fact that you and I can bring one extra little thread to this amazing weaving that we're creating to blanket the future with goodness in terms of the workplace is really powerful. And I just want to say one thing about the things that you talked about, those four elements, we do need to fall back on the science. We do it elsewhere. We talk about best practices all the time. To not talk about that in terms of the culture of organizations, I think is an opportunity that would be wrong to set aside and miss. And for all the data heads and all the people who need proof and evidence, okay, we're going to give it to you. All right. Thank you so much for this conversation today, Lisa. We've got lots more fun and exciting stuff coming up. So that's it for now. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review. And follow the Work Revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a month, we have a monthly Ask Us Anything where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering, and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com, where you'll find all our episodes as well as learn more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.